0: For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Do
1: you like to be called Ben or Benjamin?
2: In the podcast, you can call me whatever you want. That, That part doesn't matter. So, sir is okay. (laughs) Master, I prefer. No, no. (laughs) (laughs) No, no. Anything's fine.
1: Hey, everyone. I'm Evelyn, your host, and this is Repin. What would you do with 168,000 drinking straws? My next guest recovered that many straws off the streets of Vietnam and created an art installation piece to raise awareness of the impact of plastic waste on the environment. He's a Canadian artist, photographer and activist. His work is a cross-section of fantasy, art and photography. You see, he takes everyday objects and makes incredible epic art and images that are not only stunning to look at, but delivers a socially important message. He's created unforgettable campaigns for Starbucks, Dell, and Nike, and he's generated over 100 million views for causes like ocean plastics, electronic waste, to fashion pollution. He's also been named one of Adweek's 11 content-branded masterminds. He's constantly working to infuse his creativity with purpose. Now he even has a podcast called Impact Everywhere. He's going to share his experiences and how he's working to create change. Come say hello to the innovative and talented Benjamin Von Wong. Ben, thank you so much for being on the podcast. How are things going on your end in Canada?
2: We just entered code red, so basically travel between provinces have stopped, gatherings are not allowed anymore. But I don't know, I I think it's easy when you accept it. So I kind of accepted earlier this year that this whole year and probably the next was just going to be me introverting and diving deep into you know new territories through the internet. And so I don't feel too much of loss, actually. I feel pretty good, and I think that's just the privilege of Um, being able to work from home and having family and having health and all, all these things that I think not everyone has the privilege of having right now.
1: I agree with you. So you're a photographer. How would you describe your style of photography?
2: Yeah. So I think people have described my work as photos that look photoshopped. I tend to go out of my way to create things that are really weird and different and unique. So that when you look at it, you kind of wonder, is it real? Is it fake? And the goal is to ignite a sense of curiosity, because I think that when people are curious, that gives you the opportunity to have a conversation. And it's about generating conversations as opposed to preaching to people. So I'm not trying to tell people what to do or not to not do. I'm just trying to say, hey, look at this really interesting thing that I did. This is how we did it. And also this is why we're doing it. The why has changed over time, but that's always been a similar approach.
1: Let me just kind of take a minute and give a little bit of background. You take items that nobody thinks about, things that people throw away, and you incorporate them into your photography. I mean, you take hundreds of like straws, plastic bottles, old laptops, and you create this epic, fantastical photo where you make a social impact with your art and your photographs. So you, you had like a model dressed like a mermaid and you made all of these like plastic bottles look like water. I mean, it was really incredible. All of your photographs have a very important message. They're very socially aware and they're very powerful. Can you talk a little bit more about those elements?
2: Right, so I think my photography style has changed quite a little bit over time. So when you ask me like, what do you do? I think the time scale sort of matters. So most recently, I've created a lot of stuff out of waste, and so basically, I've been playing with trash for the last couple of years. <laughs> so I converted 168,000 plastic straws into, you know, the parting of the plastic sea. It was a, I think, uh, eight feet tall by ten feet long sort of art installation that was made out of straws that were collected off of the streets in Vietnam over the course of nine months. But I've also done other things in order to generate. Awareness from tying a model underwater while sharks swam around, and so I think there's just a lot of different ways to raise awareness, but they all follow like a similar guideline, which is try to do something that gets people to wonder what it was like, what was created, and then you kind of just walk people through that approach. So it's education through adventure. With regards to the mermaid project, where you put a mermaid on 10,000 plastic bottles, that was just a personal project that took place uh, the week after my sister's wedding. I happened to be in Montreal at the time. My mother found a mermaid tail designer. I wanted to find an excuse to shoot this mermaid tail. And the Great Pacific Park Garbage Patch was getting a lot of attention at the time. And so it was just an opportunity to tie these narratives together. A friend who wanted to try his hand at being a producer offered to help. And so he just called up a couple of recycling centers. On the second phone call, they said, sure, we'd love to send you 10,000 plastic bottles. And then 18 foot truck, and I was like, Wait, 18 foot truck? Like, how how much is 10,000 plastic bottles? I don't think you like, I just didn't even think about the volume of space it would take. And that's when I had to look for a warehouse, and one thing led to the other. And so, I think a lot of my projects follow this sort of adventurous trek of, of problem solving together, volunteers streaming in, and then doing the best you possibly can with what you're offered. And all of these are always documented. So, there's a there's a photography component, there's a video component, there's a blog component, there's a social media component. And I guess the best way to describe me is, is some kind of a one-man marketing agency.
1: Yeah, I think that's a huge understatement. But I want to peel this back a little bit. Ben, tell me a little bit about your heritage and your upbringing so we can kind of get a sense of where this perspective came from. We obviously talked a little bit on the phone prior, and you had mentioned a sense of being nomadic. Can you break that down and let me know what you meant by that?
2: I was born in Toronto, but overall I think I consider myself a Montrealer. And the reason why it's really hard to answer this question of like where are you from is that I actually went to 13 different schools in 3 different countries and 3 different languages. My dad was an aeronautical engineer, my mom has a degree as an accountant but decided to be a stay-at-home mother and would pick up education jobs along the way. I have one sister and so the two of us would just kind of travel f- from place to place with my family. And I guess that gave us a really interesting worldly sense of the view. I think I've always been sort of a third culture kid where no matter where I went, I never fit in. So, in Canada and the US, I was always the Chinese boy, and in China I was the Canadian guy, and You know, when I was in a French school, I was the one who kind of spoke more English or Chinese. And it's just like never quite mattered where I ended up. There was never like a sense of belonging, a sense of place. Even when I came back to Montreal, when I was a little bit older and studied French, I studied French in the French system. So I, I have a history of France. I don't know the history of Canada yet. I'm Canadian, right? And it's just this really weird, I think complex childhood, which is interesting. The reason my parents wanted us to lead this life is that they thought that if we traveled the world and we gained more perspective, it would be good for us, right? It would be good for our childhood. Yeah. And to a certain extent, I think they were right. Downside is that I have like no childhood friends. So life is sort of give and take, right? We are who we are because of a combination of circumstance and perspective. In my case, it means that I can make friends really easily. I can go anywhere. I can can, uh, adapt, empathize and adapt. Yeah. But I'm also not really good at holding on to friendships. And I think that's kind of like perpetuated throughout my adult life because I'm sort of transient. And so for the last decade as an artist, I've basically been nomadic where I would hardly spend more than six weeks in a single place at any given point in time. And so COVID in that sense has been really, really different.
1: That's so interesting. You know, adaptability in life is so important because, I mean, look at the situation we're in right now. I mean, there are huge world events that are unfolding at furious speeds. And if you're not able to adapt, everything becomes infinitely more difficult. But having said that also, you know, not ever really having a sense of roots or history is got to be really hard. You know, at first glance, I would think that seeing the world would give you so many more colors to look at and see and understand, right? But you're 100% right, not having that ability to have long-term friendships is also equally difficult. And that's not something I actually thought of. Yeah, I actually think that's a really important thing to consider and also say like, holy shit, that's, uh, that must have been really tough.
2: I don't tend to spend too much time thinking of what may be if certain things didn't actually pan out the way they did. I, I don't find it to be very practical. Life is what it is and and really it's what you do about it. And so as an example, when I moved to San Francisco a couple years ago, I think two years into my four-year residency in San Francisco, I was like, I have no friends. I need to change this. And I just made the effort, started scheduling like, friendship into my time and started making the effort to do things that weren't necessarily connected to work or any greater purpose. I guess I have a very stoical view of the world in which you know, I am who I am. If something bothers me enough, it's really up to me to try to change it. Another example of this, more in my childhood that I think you'll enjoy, yeah. is yeah. that... So, I went to thirteen different schools. Every time you're in a new school in a new country, you can be whoever you want because no one knows who you are. And so I've had the opportunity to be many different personalities. I mean, there there's always like a semblance of me, but you know, you would sure, try sure. you'd try different personas because you kind of want to fit in. So, yeah, and, and I've been everything from the cool kid to the nerdy kid to literally like the guy who would do extra homework just because it was fun. and I'd find like that group of friends. like i've I've kind of played around in all the different buckets. That never changes the fact that you're still trying to fit in. And I think everything changed. And this is probably one of the more significant experiences of my life. It was my first job at the age of 16. I got my first job as a camp counselor. When you're a camp counselor for like, I guess, 10-year-olds or eight-year-olds or whatever, you're supposed to be fun and you're supposed to be weird and you're supposed to be different. Actually, the, the weirder you were, the less you fit in, the cooler you were. Because the kids just sensed this sense of authenticity and play and fun, and they could be whoever they wanted to be. And if you were just kind of dull and ordinary, that wasn't cool. And it was the first time, I think that I was in a a situation where I felt that, like, just being who you were was going to be enough. And so I actually began my university, and I think this was kind of the first moment in my life where I felt a sense of acceptance that, you know, I'm just going to be whoever I'm going to be. and, Whoever I'm going to end up with is just going to be who I'm going to end up with. And I thought that really helped me, especially considering that my four years at my university, I ended up in um, in hard rock mining engineering, which was a very small class. It was kind of, kind of a weird place to be. And I think I would have approached it in a very different way if I hadn't had that one experience.
1: Talk to me about going from hard rock uh, engineering to photography.
2: Yeah, it sounds really weird going from these, because they're so opposite.
1: A little bit, yeah.
2: Um, But the truth is, I probably wouldn't have picked up photography without hard rock mining engineering. It's because the first time I bought a camera was actually a result of being at a work term in the middle of the desert in Winnemucca, Nevada, where a girl had just broken up with me and I had nothing better to do. Picture this, you go from being legal drinking age at 18 years old, um, so I was 20 at the time, to flying to Nevada and I couldn't go out and drink, right, so I went from being legal to not being legal in a town of 10,000 people where I didn't know anyone, and that the coolest thing for a teenager to do is go hang out at Walmart. Like, there's nothing else to do there.
1: Shit. <laughs>
2: <laughs> so, so I didn't really have anything to do. I had to figure out, like, something that I could do from my home that was self-sufficient, and I remember just, like, looking up at the stars and being like, oh, the stars are really pretty here. I should probably do something with this. That's when I decided to go out and buy a camera and try to take pictures of the stars. With most things, I think photography started off as a hobby. Unlike most things in my life, this one just stuck. Uh, Because I've tried a lot of different things. I've tried everything from playing paintball, boxing, violin. None of them was actually really good at. And it just so happens that photography, which I think is kind of the perfect balance between technical understanding of a, a piece of hardware, there's a software component when you get into the editing, there's a social component. I personally loved like trying to figure out how to shoot people. And and, and then there's a little bit of an artistic component where you could just do something weird and different. A (laughs) little. Well, I think it's one of the least or one of the less artistic art forms in that it has so much technical help behind it. That's why everyone can be a photographer, but I think not everyone can be a painter. I think the curve of adoption is a lot harder in those. So if I were to like sketch out an improvement curve, the first two years of photography are the most exciting because you go from like absolute novice to semi professional pretty easily if you just put in the time and energy. There are only like three core camera settings that you need to understand.
1: I will argue that if you give us both a camera, our results would be very different. I can't do what you do.
2: Ah, but you just need a couple years. <laughs>
1: <laughs> no, no, no. I, I think a lot of this, you know, you downplay this a little bit, but I'm I'm going to, you know, draw attention. But you need to have the artistic vision because I think if you gave me that many straws, I, I really wouldn't know what to do
0: with them. Are you ready to shop? Rakuten's Big Give Week is back.
1: You have a photo titled Strawpocalypse, which we talked about. You have another photo, which I love, where you had all of these old laptops. Again, you created this amazing image. And underneath it, you had a fact of like, did you know that we have 142,000 old computers thrown away in the US alone? So not only are you creating art, most of your photographs have this very socially important message that you're hoping to create change. I mean, Ben, you bring so much thought and your values to your images. Where does that come from? And where did it sort of start?
2: Yeah, I, I mean, going back to the source, I think is a little bit difficult. But if I were to rewind into my childhood and, and try to find where this desire to create things that matter come from, yeah, I'd have to say it probably originated from a sense of ego Because the kinds of books that I would read when I grew up were just fantasy novels, right? There's always a hero going out, saving the world. Um, The science fiction novels would be the same. Every single childhood book sort of follows the same trope. And so within, and then embedded within that is this this deep sense of morality of what's right and what's wrong in the world. I, I kind of wish that the world was that simple, that everything was black and white. Seriously. So I guess the difference as I've, grown up and matured is that I've slowly realized that actually the world is much closer to Game of Thrones <laughs> <laughs> than it is to Star Wars, right? Where like everyone is different shades of gray, including myself. Right. Um, but maybe all that we can do is to try to be the best versions of ourselves, right? And so there's this this sort of sense that everything is complex, everything could be better, not everything is as bad as it could be all at the same time. Right. In my personal journey though, if I fast forward a little bit, there was definitely like pivotal points in which I decided that I wanted my work to mean something because I definitely went through a phase where it was just exploring my own creativity and trying to figure out whether or not it was possible for me to make a living. If I go back to 2012, where I quit my job and I wanted to travel the world, that was something that was just driven by curiosity. I wanted to see what was possible. What could I create if the world was open to me? So The job was sort of holding me back and I wanted to see what happens if I had reins on the world and I would travel the world and teach, which would pay for the plane tickets and I'd meet a bunch of people because I was teaching and now I had people to do projects with and I had sofas to sleep on and from there I just waited for the next thing and it was just really like bohemian sort of nomadic life that worked out really well. Does that mean that I didn't care about the world at the time? I don't think so because I was always documenting my adventures to give back to the community that I had learned from, right? So I learned photography from the internet. And so I decided that this was now an opportunity where I could teach people all the different tips and tricks that I had learned so that others could also be inspired to pursue their passions. If I can do it, why not someone else? The goal, I think, for me was always to figure out whether or not I could make a living as a commercial photographer. Right? Wouldn't it be cool if I could create those amazing ads that we see on TV or on the billboards and stuff and have a big budget to play with so that I could actually do more creative creative things. And it only took, I think, two and a half years or something before I, I hit that goal. It's amazing. And I think it was one of those instances where the destination is less exciting than it seems. (laughs) Um, You you have these like big visions of what life would be if only you got there and then you get there and you're just like, oh, actually there are like all these other mountains to climb. For me, getting this global campaign where I earned more in this one job than my entire career combined at the time was just like, wait a minute, that's all it is? The work wasn't more creative than it necessarily was. I just spent a lot more time in meetings. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> That's so true. Yeah, um, you, you don't really gain more creative freedom. You just you almost gain
1: less. You gain I think less. In some ways.
2: Yeah, exactly. You have you have more restrictions. You have more laws. Yeah. You have more legally binding things. It becomes a lot more complex. Right. And now it takes months to create a thing that you technically could have done in a weekend, but you had to make sure you went through all these different hoops. You now have a thing that really, what has it done? It's moved product off of a shelf. Right. And so it felt like a tremendous amount of energy and effort and time that wasn't actually doing what I set out to do, which was to like positively influence the world and people in some, some capacity. I was making money though. That's good. And I think for the first time I had a runway. This was my opportunity to go like, okay, wait a minute. Maybe I've been on the wrong path. Let's just take a year to figure out what would it look like if I were to take my life and give it a more impactful direction. Because when I thought to the projects that mattered the most to me, it was always the projects that had um, a deeper sense of meaning and purpose. I can give you a couple examples. One was surprising a fan who was 21 years old, chronically ill, with fibromyalgia. I flew myself to his doorstep, wrapped myself up in a box, wished him a happy birthday, and then took him on a one-week adventure. I did a talk to fund it, like a presentation, and then he had the opportunity to speak for the first time. Actually, now he's like an award-winning photographer. Entirely like shifted the direction of his career. That's
1: awesome. Okay, that...
2: That's really cool. That's like a good use of your skill.
1: That's an understatement.
2: Another thing that I did, there was a family that reached out to me. This family wanted to raise money for their daughter who was dying of a terminal degenerative brain disease. They said like, hey, do you think you could come over and make a video? We think it could really change the course of this disease. And I was like, okay, if you don't find someone better, because I don't know how to make videos, I'm willing to like fly myself over. So I, once again, I gave a talk to fund the whole thing, ended up at their place, stayed on their sofa for 10 days made a video that ended up raising a million dollars over the course of a month, $1.8 million over the course of a year. That's incredible. Ended up being the top-funded GoFundMe campaign. Not necessarily just because of me. It was like I contributed one piece of the puzzle, but they took something that I was able to create and made a difference with it. And I was like, man, I want to do more of this kind of stuff. Like, how can I do these things that really put my skills and, and add a layer of magnification to it? That sort of became the question for over a year. And... Part of the challenge is that what I do well is like this epic fantasy. And what the world needs isn't necessarily more epic fantasy. How you make a difference with really crazy, exaggerated things wasn't immediately apparent. And so I kind of had to test and create and see how might I collide these two worlds together. It was only through experimentation, watching a bunch of documentaries, testing, that I started to realize that You know, maybe there's an element of metaphors that I could tap into. The fact that not all the topics in the world are palatable or interesting, intrinsically interesting to people. Right. So might I use art as a funnel, like the top of funnel to draw people into the conversation that wouldn't normally care for it? Could I make something that was boring, more interesting and more exciting? That became sort of the formula.
1: The answer would be a very loud yes I could look at your work all day long. I mean, it's a perfect cocktail of the two. It's not just beautiful to look at, but it's incredibly important. Now, when we talked on the phone, you had also mentioned something that I really loved and I'd love for you to kind of discuss. You said you live a life of privilege Mm. and that that privilege allows you to choose the things that you want to do to be able to create. So when you talk about privilege, obviously, this is a podcast and people can't see you. You are an Asian male for people who haven't seen you. Privilege and, and minorities don't always go hand in hand. Tell me what you meant by you have privilege and how that allows you to do what you do. Can you break that down for me?
2: Absolutely. The first thing that I have that I, I think begs a lot of recognition is I have a family that loves me. My parents are first generation immigrants. They came to the country, didn't have a dollar to their name. Dad was working three jobs. My parents had us, me and my sister are pretty young. My mom was using coupons. I mean, she still uses coupons.
1: <laughs> She's never gotten a <laughs> smart from woman. The
2: they, they did all the sacrificing and we just did the living. Growing up, my mom gave up her day job. My dad took mm-hmm. on extra jobs to make sure they could pay for things. I still got to have violin lessons that were $50 an hour. My sister got violin lessons. I started playing violin when I was three. My mom would sit there every single day for an hour, even though she didn't know anything about violin, to make sure we practiced. And that would be the same. When we went to China, we had these Chinese lessons that, right. we, that we had to learn. And they would sit there and make sure that we learned Chinese every time. And when I came back, I had to learn French. And it was like making sure that we were just constantly being given the opportunities to learn and grow and to try things out. I was not an easy child. My parents actually almost got a divorce because of me, because they just couldn't figure out <laughs> what to do about me. Because I was just like hyperactive, ADD. Kid running around, but but you know they stuck they stuck by me. Yeah. So that's like one really big core privilege. The second core privilege that I have is like education. Right. I got to go to all these different schools in all these different countries. I got to learn three different languages. I got a university degree. This was all taken care of by my parents to a certain extent. Like they had put some money aside to make sure we could go to university. They chose Canada as a country for us to study in because it was something that was affordable. You know, university here is actually quite cheap. It only costs $10,000 That's for, insane. A, <laughs> for a mining engineering degree, right? I think those fundamental building blocks are really important. You know, we, we look at life often and we think of like inflection points in terms of like the roads we would have chosen um, differently. Like how would we have turned out? Right. I think one of the things that never gets the credit is what are the things that have always been there that were just invisible, that we never paid attention to? that have allowed us to be who we are today. Right. And that's kind of, I think, what privilege entails. I see all of these um, fundamental pieces, the fact that I you know, had a degree, had a job, and then picked up photography on the side. And then my family, despite not really wanting to meet me to be an artist, also never said I wasn't allowed to try out this photography thing. I mean, I had to sort of trick them. I said I was gonna get an MBA <laughs> when I quit my day job. <laughs> and studied for the GMAT and just never actually oh went God. into the MBA. <laughs> so there are a lot, you know, you know. There's a couple, I think, standard hoops that you go through. Whatever it takes, Ben. But you just roll with it, exactly. And 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 maybe I just want to end on this: is like I've never been scared of trying different things. I don't know how much is nature versus nurture, but right. let's say it's a 50-50 split, just for the sake of it. I still have like a, this fifty percent advantage for not being scared to try and fail, and to go out there and and just know that. No matter what I do, I can always retreat, tail between my legs to come back home if I need to. There's so much like mind space that frees up as a result of that, like not having student loans. I mean, right. there, there, there's so many people out there that, that struggle with the pressure of maybe needing to take care of their parents when they grow older or, or not knowing right. what's going on. And, and I think all of that really um, is the privilege that I speak of.
1: You know, from all that we're learning about you— you're thoughtful and you have this great ability to blend important issues, things you care about, um, your sense of purpose into these incredible images and you work to make sure that your work has a lasting impact. You're teaching, you're you know, helping families raise money for illness. Um, you're really continuing your efforts to infuse your values in everything that you're doing. And now you have an incredible podcast called Impact Everywhere. Your podcast really talks with people who are working hard to make this world a better place and you spotlight their efforts. Tell me a little bit more about your podcast and what
2: your goal was. So there are a couple of reasons I started the podcast. The world that we live in today, I think, needs a lot more listening and a lot less telling.
1: Amen. (laughs) Amen. Preach, my friend.
2: Preach. Right. And so that as like a first core reason, <laughs> I really think is like the fundamental building block. So, and and this, this is not even like a reflection on the world. This is a reflection on myself. If you want to go out there and fix problems, you have to understand the problems that you're trying to fix. You can't go in there as like the white knight on a, on a horse saying like, I will save all you savages from, you know, all the problems that you face. I have all the answers. It's not actually how it works, right? You have to kind of go in there and listen. And so for me, this podcast is about my own listening, my own learning, and my own personal growing and hopefully trying to share that with the world, right? Like I could have these conversations privately, why not record them? Right. The reason I started the podcast originally was a conversation with one of my friends who has been nomadic for six or seven years. And she would just kind of stay at different people's houses and and didn't really have at the time a, a very clear career path. And I was just like... How do you make decisions on where you go, why you go there, and how you get there if you have no constraints? Because I am a person of constraints. I create my projects based on constraints. I live my life based on constraints. And constraints give me the ability to be creative. Right. On her end, it's kind of the opposite. It was sort of this abundance mindset. She uses the principle of ikigai, which is a Japanese philosophy of the there's a Venn diagram of four circles. It's what the world needs what you love, what you're good at, and what you can get paid for. And if you can find the intersection of these four things, that's called ikigai. And so that one I had heard of before. The part that I hadn't heard of before is she also breaks down her average week and how she wants to spend her time. Because how you spend your time is indicative mm-hmm. of how you're living your life. That's true. And if what you want to do and how you spend your time aren't actually aligned, then you're living your life in the wrong way. And I thought that was such an interesting perspective. So I started thinking about like, what do I actually enjoy doing and how can I do more of that? And I realized that I love having conversations with people who are smarter than me, doing meaningful work that I don't yet know about so I can actually dive deeper into it and then drawing the meaningful correlations between them. And so that conversation is the primary reason I started the podcast. And something that was supposed to just be a little side project then became the only thing that was consistent week after week, and I started noticing that this podcast could now become not only a vehicle for my own serendipity while in lockdown, it gave me an excuse to you know, stay accountable to my own growth and my own learning.
1: I love that so much. And obviously,
2: the conversations were just interesting. They give you perspective. I could, I could ask, just like you're doing, anytime I, I had a question that was top of mind in terms of what was going on in the world, I could just ask these really smart people what was, what was, what was up. Right. Over time, this podcast has sort of evolved. It's called impact everywhere because I was exploring positive impact in unexpected places. And so it's the worst marketing like technique because you're starting from a broad pool <laughs> of non-SEO-friendly <laughs> sort of material that doesn't fit in any uh, specific vertical, which means that right. it's really hard to build an audience. But that's kind of how my brain has always worked. So I have everything from NASA scientists to Oscar-winning filmmakers to human trafficking survivors to youth activists trying to figure out like, what ties these people together and what do we have to learn from all these different fields and how does it all fit together? Right. I am growing as a result of these conversations and I think that's the most important part. I'd be curious to hear from you. There's something really different going from producing piecemeal content that people double tap on and move on from and people that will sit down and listen to your thing. Mm -hmm. Two weeks ago, I was just like, it's really tiring do I want to keep going on this podcast? <laughs> because right. it's a lot of work. It is a, <laughs> lot, a of work. lot of work. Yeah,
1: it's a stupid amount of work.
2: And I was just, just kind of internally debating, like, uh, maybe I need to change the format. Maybe I need to reduce the editing. Like, what can I do to make this, like, less painful? <laughs> I received, like, four different messages randomly from people who said, Hey, I just want you to know I've been waking up every morning with your podcast. It's helped me make a decision. I had this guy reach out to me from mining engineering 10 years ago. I don't even remember meeting him. Anyways, he reached out <laughs> and he said, Hey, I just want you to know that I've been going through this really hard, like life decision, trying to figure out where I want to push my career and that your podcast has really helped me make those Aww. decisions. And I was like, Oh my gosh. Okay. This is a different kind of impact. This isn't just like inspiring people and like, da this is right. like giving people the opportunity to dial into something deeper. And mm-hmm. for you, it's, is, is it like, has it been the same, like in terms of any feedback that you've received?
1: Yeah, you know, Ben, that's a really good question because uh, as you were talking, I could certainly relate on many different <laughs> levels. It is absolutely an incredible amount of work. But yeah, I've gotten some messages from listeners. You know, one person's takeaway was something like, uh, most of their lives, they believed what other people said about them. But after like listening to an episode and hearing one of my guests and their experiences, they were inspired by them and reminded to not do that and to just live their truth. So, you know, hearing that and getting those kinds of comments, it's, it's amazing. So that, and also remembering why I originally started the podcast. You know, I'm worried about where the world is. I'm also worried that we're not listening to learn, but we're listening to respond. You know, we have to be able to see one another beyond the surface, beyond the images and beyond what society has us all labeled as. You know, we really have so much that we can learn from one another. And those are the reasons why I'm doing what I'm doing. And you know what? I have to hold myself accountable. You know, I can't complain about being worried or not happy with the situation and not try to do something about it because then I'm a part of the problem. So for all of those reasons and and more, I mean it's why I'm doing the podcast.
2: I love that. That's such a I mean and, and that's so empowering in some ways, right? Like cuz now you can do something about it. Even if it's quote unquote just a podcast. And and in so many times I think once you can see the the human behind the rhetoric, it changes everything.
1: It changes everything. And this podcast does help remind me in a very tangible way how many good people are out there, you know, doing their part, making the effort to really make a lasting and positive change for, you know, everyone.
2: You know, at the end of the day, one of the things that you're doing is, is that, sure, it's helpful for you, but you're taking the time to have these conversations online, editing them, putting them together, and then sharing them with others. And- Thank
1: you. Well, you're doing the same. If anyone is
2: listening to this interview and appreciates it, I think, you know, one of the greatest gifts that you can give is just to take the time to like write something yes. and just say like, oh, this resonated with me for some reason.
1: Yeah, please do. Because, you know, it means a lot to all of us. Guys, you got to go check out his, his podcast. It's great. It's called Impact Everywhere. For people who are still struggling with finding a voice or f- trying to figure out how to make an impact... What would your advice be to them?
2: I think that we are already having an impact, whether we know it or not. So the first step is actually to be aware of the impact that you're having on yourself, on those that are close to you, on your work, the, the environment in which you work, and the people in which you encounter on like an everyday basis. Because it starts there. You can't go and change the world if you can't change yourself. It's exactly what we've been doing in this podcast. is like zooming out and then zooming back in and zooming out and zooming back right. in. And I think that this desire to change the world and fix everything is actually a lot of ego speaking. And I think that it's a byproduct of the media that we consume. Like, you never watch a movie in which the hero doesn't accomplish anything except makes his family happy. <laughs> like, 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 everyone is always out there saving the world. And so there's this expectation because you see yourself as the hero.
1: Right, right. That's so great. And,
2: and, and I think it's just like sort of unrealistic in that way. and And so I think we often get in the way of our own ability to actually affect the people and the places in which we can, have, we can make the biggest difference. I you know I fall prey to that too. <laughs> so, so I'm very conscious of this is also me like telling myself that, you know, sometimes it's just about, you know, this immediate area of what you touch. Right. If you have that part figured out, if your your bucket is completely full on that part, then I think the other piece of the puzzle is starting to find allies in the spaces that you care about it's really rare that you have an idea that hasn't already been thought about before. Yeah, And so just going out and, and finding your tribe, it is not easy to find your tribe, to find your people, to find those that like think and believe and understand your value and finding that sense of alignment. How do you go about finding that? I don't know if there's like a universal strategy, but my strategy is, is basically this podcast, similar to what you're doing, just going out there and having conversations with people and putting yourself out there. Because if nobody knows what you're looking for, It's really hard for them to help you find it. And people gain value from being of service. Right, right. If you're not vulnerable and if you're not telling people like, oh man, I really, I wish I could find this thing. If you can't articulate it, then others aren't going to be able to articulate it. They won't be able to help you discover it. And so one of the big questions that I've been personally trying to figure out on my own is what do I want? Really simple, dumb question, but like, what do I want? It's a
1: huge question, though. It's a really hard question to answer. It's a really hard question.
2: (laughs) So I'm taking this time of COVID to, like, figure out what do I want, barring the world. Like, forget, forget about the world because the world is like an excuse. It's like saying, oh, I can't be successful because I've decided to create an impactful life. And as a result, I can't get the jobs that I wish I would like. That's an excuse. So take that aside, put put the world aside for a second, and put like your altruistic internal hero that you think you are aside. Right, right. And just look at yourself. I think that's really where all the power comes from. It's where all the, the work comes from. Yeah. There are no more excuses when it just comes to looking at yourself in the mirror. Um, and I think that's the best place to start. You
1: know, it sounds so simple. It's so hard.
2: It's Holy shit, that's so hard. <laughs> it's so miserable. It's,
1: it's <laughs> and painful. You're just like, it's such a dumb question. Why can't I figure this out? No, it's yeah. so hard. I mean, if you really, honestly take a step back and you look at it and you try to do it, that is the hardest thing. But it's also the most rewarding. Yeah. But damn, it's hard, Ben.
2: Maybe, maybe this is what I do: is that I move from place to place and I look for patterns and I draw experiences from one place and apply it to another and I look for meaning in things that don't necessarily have it in order to try to craft the thing that will help people move forward. There's so much out there in the world. And I think you, you, you gain these answers by interrogating in the first place, right? And asking the right question.
1: It's not a question that you should just answer like you're ordering you know, a combination um, at a restaurant for lunch. And
2: it's expected to change over time too. Yes. I mean, you are not the same person you were 10 years ago and you will not be the same person you are 10 years from now, nor will the world be the same. And so- clearly. Yeah, If your purpose hasn't changed, there's probably a problem.
1: Right. Yeah, it's always a work in progress. But sign us off, Ben. Let me
2: know who you are and what you represent. I'm Benjamin Von Wong, and I represent... The butterflies that float from thing to thing to thing without never knowing where to land.
1: Thanks to my guest, Benjamin Von Wong, for his time sharing his insight, stories, and perspective with all of us. He's really doing some incredible work. And don't miss his podcast, Impact Everywhere. You can find Benjamin through his social media, and you can find those links in the show description. My next guest is Kyle Maynard. He was born with a rare condition— known as congenital amputation that left him with arms that end at the elbows and his legs that end near his knees. He's an entrepreneur, best-selling author, mixed martial arts fighter, wrestler, and the first man to bear crawl to the top of the highest mountain in Africa, Mount Kilimanjaro, and reach the summit of Argentina's Mount Aconcagua. Pretty badass, right? Check out this clip with my conversation with Kyle
2: you look at those moments that you've gone through in the past and you can draw upon them to you know determine that like you're capable of of overcoming those things My name is Kyle Maynard, and my episode of Reppin is coming up next. Reppin is
1: available on all top podcast platforms, so subscribe, tell your friends, and leave us a review. And I want to hear from you, so you can reach me at Twitter, at Reppin Podcast, and follow me on Instagram, at Reppin underscore podcast. Thanks always to Nelson Pinheiro and Gracie Kong. Reppin is a Suburban Outlaw Productions. Until next time, stand up and represent.